And I was able, thanks to the MBA, to look at the bigger picture, but also demonstrate the financial values I was bringing to the customer. Mm. And that was for me eye-opener. It was like, this is, this is what we need to do, because if we cannot find out what the value is for the customer, we shouldn't even bother our customer. Yeah. There's an old book, Dylan, uh, Peter's Principle, uh, I'm sure you know it. It's about uh, someone who's doing a very good job in, in uh, uh, repairing cars and then becomes the team leader because he's uh, repairing so well. And instead of uh, giving, uh, explaining people how to do it, he was always saying, you know what, uh, is there a problem? Okay, everyone come here, I'll show you how it's done. And what the, what the result was, he was still working on cars, he was still doing the job himself, and he was taking away all the others from their work. Welcome to Road to Revenue Leadership a show that candidly explores how hard it is to create, build and scale world-class revenue organizations by leaders that have been there, done that and have seen the result. My name is Dylan Mendez, founding CEO of Usight, and I'm excited that you're tuning in to the podcast. If you're a fan of the show, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Enjoy. All right. Well, maybe um, we should start by introducing Edwin Van Was. Who is Edwin? Uh, where do you come from? What's your short elevator pitch about yourself? Uh, well, well, there's not there's not too much to t tell about it. I'm I'm very happily married with two lovely daughters, uh, so that's probably uh, the most uh, most important thing in my life. Um, but I'm also an identical twin, um, oh. so you might uh, think you might meet me somewhere in uh, the region <laughs> of Antwerp, uh, and I'm not saying hi. So it's not me, then it's my brother because we really look alike. So uh, <laughs> even at my age, uh, we still look uh, very much like each other. Um, um, from for, for studies, I studied engineering, um, but you know what? I quickly discovered I wasn't a real engineer, so I wasn't getting all the energy about designing technology. Uh, I quickly uh, learned that I want to sell technology. We had a professor who really introduced us in, in selling, and, and that was really for me an eye-opener. So I wanted to sell um, technology. Um, and I've been doing that in begin fr from the beginning of my career. So I ended my, my career in a sales job. Yeah. And I grew uh, further on as a direct contributor to sales leader to even uh, large, managing very large teams uh, in my career. Um, I've also done an MBA, uh, which was for me also a pivotal, uh, pivotal moment in my career. And uh, but I'm sure we will uh, we'll get uh, back to that. Yeah, we'll definitely touch on that because I want to I want to go a little bit back. You said about the identical twin. So I have to ask. When you were younger, were there sometimes moments where you kind of interchange position? <laughs> well, only once, only once. Only uh, once we, no, we swapped classes. We swapped classes, and, and you know what? All the all the students they 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 knew quickly that we weren't the person that we were pretending to be. It took a bit longer for the teacher to learn how, uh, learn about that, and then it was <laughs> very uh, tricky. But uh, no, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Oh gosh! And did you do it because you know you didn't want to do a test or of some kind, or was it just you know no, to fool and have some fun? fun? Yeah, fooling around, having fun. That was kind of uh, who we are. Uh, definitely we would do that too. Can't blame you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, Edwin, super interesting. So you started, uh, well, you studied engineering, but then um, immediately enrolled into sales. Am I right? Why exactly. was that? You didn't even, I mean, you immediately enrolled into sales, but why? I wouldn't think that people would want to enroll in sales in the first place. Yeah, because uh, first of all, I was raised in a uh, in, in family. My father was an entrepreneur, so I was... Uh, as a, as a student, I helped him out. I was in contact with customers and I really liked the customer as aspect of, uh, of business. So really um, mm. 
trying to create value for the customer was something that I, I, I that pleased me. I, I really loved enjoy I enjoyed doing that, and and that's when I said, you know what, let's go for it. Um, there was a um, uh, an ask for a salesperson uh, with a couple of years experience in the in the papers. It was uh, back then. It wasn't LinkedIn. It was <laughs> it was the papers, and I said. Well, why not try? Why not try? And I responded to it and they hired me. So to my big surprise, they hired me because I didn't have any experience uh, just uh, besides helping out my father uh, in his business. But uh, I was hired and since then I've been in sales uh, for the rest of my career. Ever since. Lovely. All right. Well, then I will have to ask you, what is your road to revenue leadership? Can you maybe kind of explain a little bit about your, your career until now? And uh, if there are anything, any stories, any anecdotes you would like to share, feel free to do so. Otherwise, maybe I, I might do myself. <laughs> yeah, so I've been working for many uh, large American companies and I was very lucky to work with uh, many of the leaders in the market. Uh, just to name a few, uh, IBM, SAS Institute, Salesforce, all leaders in their domain. So that was, uh, I was very happy. Um, and, and quickly, uh, I think already after five years, I became a manager of a team. Um, and 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 there's a couple of things that I learned that are really important. So it's it's all for me. It all starts whether uh, whenever you join a new company, it's about creating an environment of trust. Yeah, without trust, there's nothing you can do. If mm. people are not uh, free to speak openly and trust each other, that's that's an issue. And trust also helps you to uh, make people accountable. What do I mean by that? Trust makes you capable of empowering people because you trust them. And if you empower them, you can make them accountable. So that's absolutely key for me. Um, also, walk the talk, as I say, lead by example. Um, I, I've seen too many managers that say you have to do this and they um, they behave completely uh, the opposite. So that is absolutely what you need to avoid. And uh, finally, that's something that I learned over the last couple of years. Um, everyone wants to be a leader and a coach or a mentor. But you need to learn to manage also, uh, and that's absolutely critical uh, if you if you in your career in uh, if you're managing teams. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, I'm I'm sure we will deep dive into um, some of the topics you, you just mentioned. But I'm also always curious to understand the person um, behind you know your story. And so maybe to start um, off from the start of your professional career, you know what was the ambition? What was your goal back then? Um, because you had some engineering background, but then moved into sales. So was that because you wanted to have some impact? Yeah, so my ambition wasn't very big. Uh, I was I was raised in an environment and I was learned to work hard and stay humble. And that really was my guide in my career. So I wasn't taking a job thinking about, yeah, in five years, I want to be the manager. That was absolutely not my goal. Mm. My goal when I took a job was to be successful in that job. I wanted to be successful and, and demonstrate that I was a good hire. And I knew and I was told by my parents, if you do well, everything will follow. So the career will follow, the salary will follow, everything will follow. But I was always focused on being successful in the job I was hired for. Mm -hmm. So always giving 110% didn't matter what it was. Yeah, for sure, for sure. It's uh, it's. Uh, I'm I'm raised in the time where uh, hard working was absolutely the the the, the basics uh, of everything that you do. So yeah, the 110 percent is probably an uh, uh, is underestimating what it was really what what it really was. Yeah. Do you, do you feel that now times have changed? That maybe people have softened a little bit. 
It's not soft, and I think uh, the time has changed, and people are more aware that there's other things besides work. I think I still mm -hmm. come from the generation where, you know what, um, if you go for work, you give it your all. Uh, and I'm not saying uh, the, the newcomers are not giving it their all, but they understand better the balance between giving it all at work, but also giving it all at home. And and I'm not su suggesting that I didn't give my all uh, in the family <laughs> and, and at home, but uh, I was I, I was working long days, uh, long hours. Um, and I, I, I'm happy to see that the youngsters today um, want to defend themselves um, and, and take some more personal time, which is absolutely neat because if you see the stress that's been put on people nowadays, it's very, very big mm -hmm. so uh, it's good that they try to defend that balance for the for themselves yeah i, I feel you especially post-covid everything is digital you know you can be asked of help uh, at any moment so uh, kind of defending yourself uh, uh on your time and your privacy kind of makes sense um maybe to to also look back at uh, your career you know have you had some false beliefs about what you should do or should believe or sh you know whatever it could be that you now don't think uh, as true as anymore. Well, I, let me give you an example as a manager. When I started to become a manager after probably five years in my career, um, I, I wanted to be friendly to everyone. And I, I, I found it very important that I was, uh, people find me sympathetic and then they, they wanted to work with me and they, they thought I was a nice guy. And you know what, I quickly learned as a manager, um, that's not what you need to look for. Um, you need to be, treating people all the same, but you need to be clear also. Yeah. So um, you need to be a manager in the first place. You need to manage your business and the people and make them better. And that doesn't always come with just being friends. Yeah. Um, I've learned that uh, through the career, if you build friendships, that's a bonus, uh, but you should not aim for it. Uh, mm. So, uh, uh, and that was a key lesson for me. Yeah. So uh, I was just wondering, what does it mean to be friendly to you? Just to, to understand what, what was it like to, to trying to be friendly to you? And how has this then changed? What was your behavior? How was your behavior different when you understood that that maybe is not the thing that I should be pursuing? Well, probably it's about keeping a little bit more distance. Um, if you get too close and, and the, uh, you, you, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but if you go to a pub with your team or with some of your team members and you have a long night uh, of uh, fun and drinks, and the next day you need to have a rather tough discussion on performance that that's that's a mismatch that's a mismatch so mm. it's about of course you need to stay friendly i'm not saying that you need to be an unpolite manager absolutely not but you should not become friends uh, or not seek to become friends if you become friends that's again what i said it's a bonus but it's not something you should be looking for yeah exactly but interesting you say that because i would also think that the company culture has a big element i mean is a big element when it comes to that Absolutely. I agree. I agree. All right. Well, well, maybe the, the opposite of having false beliefs in your career, were there also elements, you know, that kind of accelerated, maybe consciously, maybe unconsciously, uh, yeah, the achievements that you have had along the, along your career. Oh, yes, of course. So, so first of all, yeah, I, I had many managers and I've always was eager to learn from my managers, whether it were good managers or lesser good managers. <laughs> I always tried to learn uh, what to copy, what to repeat and what certainly not to do. Uh, so that was a great lesson. But I think a pivotal moment in my career, and I think I mentioned it before, was my MBA. 
And the reason I say it, I was an engineer, as I told you before, not a real engineer. I studied engineering, I graduated, but uh, I wasn't feeling like an engineer. And the technology, although I was very interested in it, I was not the person that was going to design the technology. So when I did the MBA, it gave me a very much bigger picture on what role uh, what uh, what you should do with your customers and the business that you're running. So, um, in fact, as a seller, because at that time I was still selling, I was a, a direct contributor, the MBA gave me a broader perspective of business and helped me to become a value seller for my customers. So instead of being a feature seller, which I was because I was selling technology, mm. I became more and more a value seller where I was focused on the value of the customer. And I was able, thanks to the MBA, to look at the bigger picture, but also demonstrate the financial values I was bringing to the customer. Mm. And that was for me an eye-opener. It was like... This is, this is what we need to do because if we cannot find out what the value is for the customer, we shouldn't even bother our customer. Yeah? So it all starts with the value for the customer. So that was, that was, uh, that was absolutely important for me. And it helped me in, in every step in my career, whether it was as an account manager, as a sales director, or even as a CEO, it helped me uh, focusing on the value for the customer. Yeah, um, very interesting. When was it exactly that you did, it, that you did it, this MBA? Uh, it was at uh, the uh, Flanders Business School. It's now called Flanders Business School. It was related to Northwestern and Kellogg's in, in the US. So it was, uh, it was really interesting. Uh, they had a good relationship with the American school that was uh, known in the market. And uh, really, it helped me a lot. And I can only advise people to do such uh, an extra master after, mm -hmm. after the master. And have you, have you had some, some years of experience before going in, uh, to that uh, to Flanders Business yeah, School, doing uh, the MBA? And, and, Yeah, if I reflect, it was probably too short. Uh, they were very strict that you had to have five years of experience. Okay. And in the beginning, I thought, why the hell? Why do I need to wait that long? But I completely understand them uh, because uh, you get uh, things explained that you haven't experienced yet. And that makes it hard because it becomes uh, it tends to become very theoretical. Um, and, and if you have the experience, it's, it, become, it becomes really practical. A hundred percent. I hundred percent agree with that, uh, with that statement. When I look back at, at my degree, because I did business engineering at the KU Leuven, but I had no context whatsoever to apply it in. So, I, I, I mean, I couldn't tell you the, the difference in value it would, have, it would have if I would do the degree now compared to when I was, uh, when I was still a student with no uh, actually professional uh, occupation. So I, I, I 100% feel you. Um, maybe also a question related to this. Was it you that came up with the idea of maybe I should do an MBA? Or did a mentor come to you and say, you know what, Edwin, I think it's good if you maybe enroll to an MBA? No, I think it was myself because I had a hunger and I felt that mismatch being, uh, being, uh, between being a real engineer And, and being with customers and talk about business values and that kind of stuff. Mm. I, I felt that much and I was eager to learn. And, and yeah, there's many, many things that you then can go do. Um, but uh, I, I heard about the MBA. I started to investigate and I said, this is exactly what I want to do because it will be, give me perspectives on finance, on HR, on, on all the different aspects of, of, a, uh, of running a business. And that's what I wanted to learn. Yeah, lovely. All right. So... You kind of touched on it already, but how is this, how has this then changed the your approach to to selling, to be on the field, to also maybe look to the progression in terms of your career? What is how has this uh, kind of influenced that? 
Yeah, so, so so I feel that everyone needs to make an evolution as a seller. Yeah, and there's different types of uh, sellers. There's the uh, what I call the hard sellers or the transactional, transactional sellers, seller, the feature yeah. sellers. Uh, there's the consultative sellers. There's yeah, the the prov prov provocative seller, and then at the end, value seller. I'm not pretending that everyone needs to become a value seller. Although I'm nevertheless, I'm saying that everyone should be focused on the value of their customer. That's uh, different. But becoming a value seller is is, is a very broad um, uh, idea, but and there's probably a place for every type of seller, um, depending on the business you're in. If you're just selling one very specific product, well, you could be the feature seller, yeah. But there's always pitfalls in every of those uh, um, uh, types. Uh, if you look at the hard seller or the transactional seller, I've seen too many that where it's all about ego. They only think about themselves. It's about me. Mm. I want to get an order. Thinking about the customer. If you look at the feature seller, could be good for a very specific solution. But I've seen too many. There's a good expression in English that says, "When you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail." Well, they're not even. Sometimes they're not capable in differentiating the needs of the customer, yeah, mm -hmm. from one to the other customer, and that that could be a pitfall. If you look at consultative seller, there's been a lot of documentation about consultative selling, whether that's uh, absolutely the, what what you want to be. And it can be very powerful, although also there I've seen sellers being very good consultative, not sellers, you know. So they have mm. been consulting customers all the way. They got the energy about explaining all the time to the customer what they think they should do. And they've got one thing. We're also in the business of selling, you know. So it needs to be a win-win for the company you work for and the company you serve. Right. So that's for consultative selling. And then the next step um, I, I, you could read in the literature was then, yeah, let's become a provocative seller where you dare to say to your customer, Mr. Customer, I think you're wrong. Uh, you should not do it that way. I believe you should do, do it this way. And that can be very, very powerful. But also there I've seen sellers completely deviating from what it really meant uh, with a transactional seller. It was more like becoming an arm wrestling game where they wanted to win and, and show the customer that they knew more about their business and about uh, everything that they had to do. So that was also uh, um, uh, dangerous. And then, of course, there's a the value selling. And the value selling is all about focusing on the value for the customer. And mm -hmm. if you do that well, um, you as a seller gets a lot of energy, but what is even better, your customer, your contact is getting a lot of energy because he sees and he understands the value that you're bringing and the how impact. you're helping their business forward. And that is very satisfying as a seller. Very satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. I 100% see what you mean. Um, maybe because you also said that you had some hunger uh, when you had not done the MBA yet, but you still, I guess, had the, you know, the intention to help you, your customer the best you can. And so you saw the MBA and thought, I will enroll. And so that's hunger kind of always already, you know, give a direction or give an idea of the work ethic um, you maybe had and you still have. But can you maybe kind of explain what was your work ethic? What is, what is your mindset when it comes to, to work and being on the work field? Uh, what can you share about that? Well, I, I spoke about things like trust and, and uh, that's all important, but it all starts with treating people with respect. You know, um, uh, you want to you wanna make sure that you um, treat people such that they get the energy that they need to come to the, the office uh, every day. Um, I always say be hard on the facts, be soft on the people. I'm not saying that by, um, by treating people with respect, you cannot be very direct and even sometimes pass on a tough message. 
but it needs to be done in a respectful way. So that is absolutely important. Um, if you're not capable of doing that as an expression in Dutch, I'm not sure whether it works in English, but <laughs> if you, as a, as a doctor, you're too soft, uh, eventually the, the wounds will start to smell. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an expression mm. in, uh, in, in Dutch. And I, I, I kind of like that. Uh, sometimes you need to be able to pass on a, a tough message, but the mismatch is often that managers believe that passing a hard message needs to be done in a hard way. No, it can be done. You can pass a hard message in a respectful way. And that's often forgotten, which, uh, which for me is a shame. Yeah, I think it also just starts in the position of the leader, right? Also just you taking yourself, criticism, feedback, being vulnerable. No? You touch upon a very good point, uh, Dylan. Um, if you want to create this environment of trust and respect, uh, you need to, again, lead by example. If you're not vulnerable yourself and you don't dare to say, you know what, I'm open for feedback. You can tell me whatever you want. And you know what, sometimes I don't know the answer to that. Setting yourself vulnerable helps your uh, team to be vulnerable. And that's kind of the basis of, uh, of respect to each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to to even think point. of to even think of this uh, a little bit broader. I think when you look at the world today, everything is moving at such a high speed. You almost need to have a, a culture of innovation to to be able to to follow that pace. And so I think that, I mean, especially as the leader, you need to to kind of you know show how things should be going. And I think that accepting yourself feedback criticism always questioning yourself about your current approach about where we should going just you doing that you know it's it's just showing the path for the rest and i think it it looks like a small tiny thing but it's also just to have really having that innovation culture what's what's your thought on that it's absolutely right everything that you say but i think there's a, there's an addition to that it's also about so if you create this environment it's also about um giving people the chance to fail <clears throat> and how do you give them the chance to fail is about empowering them and that comes again with the trust yeah so create that environment of trust empower them and then make them accountable and i have a story i, I can tell about that when when i joined a new company and inherited a team of, of sellers <clears throat> the former manager was moving a, a site and was going to do something else in the company and you know when you enter a team like that or a company like that they're already in in closing mode because there's another quarter to be closed or whatever so there was a lot of uh, of uh, stress going on and uh, the former manager came to see me and and, and said edwin um, your biggest deal um, is not going to happen because uh, you should not trust your salesperson is uh, not capable of doing this so you should, you should you should step in and you should bring home this uh, this deal and i was kind of shocked with that because i said you know what um, that's not how i w want to work with people so i went to see the seller and i i had an open debate and i said you know this deal what do you think about it he f felt rather confident and i said you know what this is an important deal for for you for me for everyone in the company so we need to win this so i i need to trust uh, you that you can bring it home and he convinced me, asked him all the questions about how he was progressing, uh, progressing on the deal. And I felt he was doing the right stuff. Yeah. So I said, you know what, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to be here as your mentor and coach. Whenever you need me, I'll step in whenever you ask me, but I'll let you do. Yeah. So, but I trust we bring this home. Um, and of course, I followed up every week and I asked him the questions, but I wasn't telling him what to do. I just want, was checking. Over the course of the, those two, three months when we were closing uh, the deal, that Former manager came to see me another two times. 
And the last time was very, very direct. It was like, you know what? You're making a big mistake. This is never going to happen. The seller is not capable. I wasn't distracted by that message. I kept on giving the empowerment to the seller and giving my full support. And at the end, that person won the deal. And that was such an important meeting um, um, moment for that person. Why? Because he, at that moment, became the star of the company because he won a very important deal. But also he felt as a person, as a seller, he was successful and could be very successful and he had the right approach. So from that moment, that person become a, became a really great, confident seller and even became a manager later on because he was given the trust, he was empowered, and that's when he felt he, he was also accountable, accountable of, of yeah. making, making the difference. And that was for me a big, big... Um, big moment that really demonstrated that giving trust to people, setting this environment of respect, um, uh, empowering, making people accountable was uh, absolutely uh, key. Yeah, I love such examples and thanks for sharing because uh, we, we have also had conversations like this inside the community where indeed when it comes to, I will call it now sales coaching, you really have to keep yourself from being the super sales as the sales leader because yeah, you have had a lot of experiences, you have closed big deals before, but if you want your people to grow, it's to them to maybe even fail the deal. And that's the risk that you have to take as a coach, as a leader. But uh, but yeah, in your example, I, I think it illustrates just uh, the way that, uh, or the impact that it could have. Very well, interesting. There's, there's, uh, there's an old book. There's an old book, Dylan, uh, Peter's Principle. I'm sure you know it. It's about uh, someone who's doing a very good job in, in uh, uh, repairing cars and then becomes a team leader because he's uh, repairing so well and instead of uh, giving uh, explaining people how to do it he was always saying you know what uh, is there a problem okay everyone come here I'll show you how it's done and what the what the result was he was still working on cars he was still doing the job himself and he was taking away all the others from their work because they all had to look at him how he was repairing cars so so that was that is that's kind of the peter's principle you you get promoted to a level where you probably are incapable so you need, you need to be sure that you uh, let people uh, do their own thing and and not bother with their with their responsibility yeah i 100 percent feel you and yes it's gonna it's it's a risk i guess it's uh, about losing control but it's also about the trust and, and believing in your people. So um, it's, it comes with that. But I think we make right. a, a good transition to also uh, the element that you mentioned earlier about that people, whenever they come in a leadership position, they like to become a coach, but forget also the, the basics of being a manager. And you mentioned that in a previous call. And so I really want to bring this up also in this discussion because I thought it was very interesting. Uh, can you maybe share your your thoughts about the topic and also, you know, why you think, uh, why you think of that? Well, if you, if, if you ask a hundred people leaders, and I was in a room just uh, this week uh, with uh, 60 leaders. And when you ask them the question, who wants to be a manager or who wants to be a leader and a mentor and a coach, and probably all hundred or 99% say, say, we want to be the leader. We want to be the coach. We want to be the mentor. And they definitely don't want to be the manager because manager is often seen as micromanagement and that is that's something completely different and, and i'll come back on that so my strong belief is that if you want to be a strong leader mentor and coach you need to be a manager first 
And what do I mean with that? When, whenever It's not in your career. It doesn't mean like you need to start your career as a manager and then evolve towards a leader. No, it's whenever you got into a new job, into a new company, you got a team, well, you need to be a manager first. And why do I say that? Um, there's a couple of things that you need to do as a manager. Yeah? So you need to set the basics, make things very clear from the beginning so that there's no surprises uh, later on. You need to set up a monitoring uh, tool, like you need to be able to manage your business. You cannot be a good leader if you don't know your business. And then you need to introduce what I call a drumbeat, like a sequence of events that's very clear from the beginning uh, for everyone what you expect. And those, that sequence of, of events will give you the progress of your business and will give you visibility on the progress of your business. And if you get that in order, that's the basics, then you can become the, a real leader because you, you will free up time. And if people say, you know what, this is micromanagement, I'm, I, I think it's the opposite because if I'm doing a drumbeat and I'm doing a forecast with my team every week, 20 minutes each, yeah, that person knows that during that 20 minutes, we're going to talk about numbers. Yeah? And, and, and I'm not going to call that person at seven that night saying, you know what, I have a, a report to give to my CEO, to my board. Uh, can you help me out with the numbers? That's not going to happen because we have those moments when we talk. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And all the other moments we can be up for real focus on the business, on our customers, on, 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 on uh, developing ourselves. So that's absolutely critical. Yeah, it's also about setting, just setting the right expectation, I think. Um, micromanagement is definitely something else uh, that nobody wants. I, I, I feel the negative connotations that you have with being a manager. Maybe that sounds, uh, maybe people make direct uh, relationships with, with micromanagement. But, um, but I feel you. Maybe... But if, it's, often, if, it's often forgotten, Dylan, if I, if I just quickly can... Uh, uh, talk a little bit further on that so it's it's often forgotten people are so focused on becoming a leader that as you say it gives managing a, a bad connotation but it, it should not be it's just about again treating people with respect and how do you deal uh, uh, treat people with respect by making things clear from the beginning this is what i expect uh, so let's make that clear this is what do you expect let's find this work way of working and then we can focus on the on the bigger picture mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel that maybe in some way, when you think of a manager, it's a, a person that brings in negative news that will be, uh, yeah, that will be providing criticism, that will you know look for feedback to improve, and that maybe yeah gives a, a an element of fear in some way. And I think that the leader or the coach is the person that will look behind the person and that will you know try to all right, what is it exactly that you want? How can we make create an environment to exactly fit what you want? And while that, you know, might be to some extent uh, kind of true, I think that a leader, and you probably agree even more with that, um, is a manager by definition anyways. You have yeah, to give yeah, that criticism, sure. that feedback to create that environment. Yeah, for sure. But I, I cannot repeat enough for me the three things that a manager needs to do. Yeah, Do the basics, tell you what you expect, what's the behavior that you expect. Uh, what are your mandatory meetings? What do you expect from a forecasting uh, call? How do you want them to use tools like the CRM, that kind of stuff? Those are the basics, yeah. Um, the monitoring, it's about making sure that you monitor uh, what you expect, expect your team to do, yeah? So define the role first. What's, what's the role of your team? And in the sales team, for me, it's very simple. I call it CPC. Uh, you're either creating pipeline, you're progressing pipeline, or you're closing pipeline. If you look at a seller's job, that's 
that's kind of a good summary. Yeah. So set up a monitoring system that really manages that. So it's about making sure that you can monitor the progress, the creation of the pipeline and see how you're closing. And there's many ways that you can do that. You can have pipeline reports, you can have good forecasting reports and all that kind of stuff. So set up uh, all that. And then the drumbeat again, I, I, I mentioned it before, is really critical. If I say in the beginning of the year, when I distribute quotas to, to the sales team, and I say, now in the beginning of the year, I want you to build a plan on how you will reach that quota. That's the first thing people know that every beginning of the year, we need to build that. We do a quarterly review of that plan. They know that upfront. And we do a weekly forecast, those 20 minutes I spoke about. Well, as a seller, my agenda is now very clear. I know exactly what, what is expected. And I can now really focus on my customer, you see. So uh, that's that's what we want to achieve with that as a manager. Mm -hmm. But how can you then still try to, to balance those two responsibilities of being a manager and being a coach? How do you, how would you try to, to find that balance uh, in it? Well, very good question. So, so if you got that in place and that shouldn't take too long, it can be, can go very quickly, but it's about respecting each other and setting expectations. Then it's about becoming that leader. And the way you do that is there's, there's, there's twofold. So it's first of all, creating this environment of trust. And then it's making also your team members better. I think as a coach, as a mentor, as a leader, that's what you want to do. Yeah. Um, so, um, creating an environment of trust is, uh, is really important and there's often misunderstandings of trust. Um, um, trust is really um, based on behavior, should be based on behavior. Um, so, so if you look at, uh, it's, it's not a feeling, yeah? If you talk about trust, it's not a feeling, it's really, you look at behaviors and that creates trust, yeah? And the strange thing is that many managers, they judge their teams based on behavior but they judge, judge themselves on the good intentions that they have. And that's a big pitfall here. Yeah? So you need to be careful with that. Uh, trust is really based on behavior. And you, you looked as a manager, you looked like that as a, the same way. But trust is also important because, and I think I mentioned it a little bit before, if you create trust in an environment, that means that you take away the fear of conflict. People are free to speak openly and they're not fearing the conflict. Because if there's fear of conflict, you create artificial harmony. And artificial harmony is the worst thing that can happen in the company because it, uh, it creates a lack of accountability and, and therefore inattention to results. Yeah? So yeah, that's what, what do you mean the basics with, of everything. What do you mean with artificial harmony? Artificial harmony, if I, I'm working as a, we're working as a team but not really operating as a team. You know what, we, we kind of tolerate each other, but I don't dare to say you're Dylan. I think mm. um, you're not doing the right things because you promised you were going to do this and you didn't. I don't dare to speak out to you because there's a fear of conflict. There's no trust uh, uh, between gotcha. us. So creating that environment, of, that's where the vulnerability again comes, uh, uh, comes across is uh, you need also to dare to say, you know what, you're right. I, I didn't do that well, but I'll make it. I'll make it happen now. You know. So, but that debate is is a is is an environment where everyone makes everyone better, and that is absolutely critical. No, it's it's also about making teams better. Eh? So it's uh, it's not just creating the, the trust environment as a coach, as a mentor. You need to help your team to become better. Uh, and and I think we mentioned a couple of things. Is 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 allowing for failure because you can learn a lot from your failures. 
from your from your errors, from your faults. You can learn a lot about that. But it's also about helping them. In, in many cases, it's about in in the sales team. It's about making them from uh, a hard seller or a feature seller, helping them to become a true value seller. That's kind of the the role as a manager is going to be uh, be important to make your team better. Because if people feel that they are getting better every day they're going to be happy also you know uh, people people want to learn they want to be they want to grow working for a successful yeah. company and they want to learn every day. 100% I 100 feel that um you are now an executive mentioned sorry Dylan I interrupted you no sorry go ahead No, I just wanted to mention because I, 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 I spoke a lot about trust. There's perhaps uh, if I, if you allow me, there's two books I can recommend uh, people to read. There's uh, Five Dis uh, Dysfunctions of a Team from Patrick Lencioni. That's all about the trust, creating a trust environment. And then the aspect of trust is behavior. It's uh, based on behavior. It's not uh, a feeling. That is a book uh, from, uh, from Stephen Covey, uh, The Speed of Trust. So those are really two good books uh, for people to read. All right. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, we'll make sure to to add these two books in um, the the show notes. Um, anyway, you are now an executive coach, um, assisting mostly CEOs or any type of leaders. That's um, that's kind of right. I am I right? Yeah, correct, correct. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. What what are the the contexts that you mostly get in get in contact with? What are the issues that you mostly mostly uh, see, and and that's why then you are entering the company. Yeah, so it's a it's a fantastic job I'm doing. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I've been working for these large uh, large American companies, and I'm now assisting in many cases uh, startups or scale ups uh, that really need to make the next move. Huh? So typical companies that are doing a 4 million uh, euro revenue and they need to make uh, in the next 12 months 10 million. So that, that kind of growth uh, numbers uh, uh, are in the plans, um, are requested by their investors, uh, that kind of stuff. So so when I when I join those, join, when I uh, help those customers, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm very pleased with what I see. Uh, there's a lot of um, quality in Belgium. It's unbelievable uh, companies with a drive, with a passion, with with yeah, everything it need, it's needed is it, needed uh, to become successful. But what what strikes me all the time is that with just small little changes, you can help them to propel their growth. Yeah, uh, they've been very successful because they have, for example, a great product or whatever, and they've been growing. They've been growing like 30, 40 percent a year. But suddenly they, they, their plan says you need to double or you need to triple. Yeah, uh, Unicorns, yeah, they need to triple a couple of years uh, yeah, one after the go other. Go make that happen. Um, but that is something that, yeah, it doesn't happen like that, you know. So that's when you need to get some, you need to operationalize uh, some of the stuff. And also in sales, you need to <clears throat> kind of operationalize the way you approach your customers. And uh, and I mentioned how you do that. It's also about following up your team eh, with the basics, with uh, with the monitoring tools, and and with the drumbeat. You need to get all that things in place um, so that that it's it's scalable. Your business becomes scalable, uh, mm -hmm. which is absolutely important when you're a startup. Okay, okay, very interesting. So, are you mostly working with founders, or is it new CEOs that are being introduced in the company and they have to make it kind of happen? And that's where your expertise also comes in uh, in good praise. 
So I have close contacts with a couple of investors, uh, great investors in, in Belgium. So uh, obviously, um, they sometimes come to me and say, Edwin, we, we have invested in a company. Can you just contact them and see how you can help them? So that's sometimes how it starts. But uh, uh, if not, it's directly with the CEO of the company um, and, and seeing how, how I can help. And, and, and you know what? Um, the CEOs in Belgium, they are very, very smart people, very, very smart people. And not because they're knowledge only, but also because they know if we surround ourselves with experts in the different domains, we can propel our business. And, and they're doing that very, very well. Yeah, I feel you. I think we are very... And, and I'm lucky because I can do this. I can sorry sorry Dylan I can do that in different industries I've been I've been doing in all I've been doing this in all the industries not just in the software business or in the IT business in all businesses and that makes it for me very rewarding and very interesting Yeah that's that's uh that's a nice thing to say and I think I feel you yeah, I, I think in Belgium we are a very modest uh community and so I can imagine that uh even the smartest people would always like to be surrounded by even smarter people making us actually strong organization. Unfortunately, sometimes working on smaller scales than we should be working at. But, uh, but I guess that's also the, the cuteness of, uh, of working in a country such as, such as Belgium. Um, to link a little bit back yeah, maybe to, to what you said earlier about, you know, you shouldn't be too much of a coach in the first place, but also a manager. How do you see that translated into those interventions that you do at those different companies? Well, I really help. So, so often, often these are people that understand. Um, typical, the CEO has been managing their team directly, yeah, uh, and they they got up to four, five million euros, something like that. <clears throat> if they want to grow, they also need to put a structure in place. So, typically, they're looking for a new sales director, or a VP sales, or that kind of stuff. Yeah, it takes a while before you get that person on board. So, what I'm doing is I'm helping those companies really to. Uh, already set a structure in place and and a kind of uh, modus operandi in place such mm. that when the new person comes that is that that work has been done and that person can start becoming that leader uh, as quickly as possible because uh, many of the basics have been implemented already so i really help companies to uh, implement those basics um, and and kind of uh, coach the team uh, while they are waiting for the new vp sales to arrive right if they do, yeah, a, a revenue, I mean, if they have a revenue of four to five million, I suppose they already have uh, a decent team they work with. But I can also imagine, especially when, you know, you come from the startup and you've grown out to a scale-up phase that you used to be a very operational person, but then all of a sudden you kind of have to be the leader, uh, the person at the steering wheel. And that also tr transform really the responsibilities, the work that you do every day. Do you see that also um, with those people? that you work with? Yes. So, so first, well, you, you need to also coach the CEO a little bit. Uh, and and I'm, I don't want to pretend that I know it all, but uh, you need to help them because they've been so on top of their own business in the very much details. But if they want to grow, they need to, they, they need to make sure that business can scale. So they need to be able to step, uh, they need to go up in their role. Yeah. They can't be in all the details anymore. So, so it's also about coaching them uh, how to do that and how to give kind of this empowerment to other people in the company. That is absolutely critical. Now, I gave the example of 4 million uh, euro companies. I've been assisting companies that are doing like uh, between 50 and 100 million also. Yeah. So, uh, but what I recognize is that in many companies, and that's why I was lucky to work for these large 
American companies like uh, Salesforce, for example, <clears throat> um, there's a lot to be learned uh, about professionalizing sales teams uh, because companies like Salesforce, they, they've done that for many, many, many years. They know how to do it. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a science, you know, it's, it's not like, uh, uh, like you need to reinvent the wheel. Uh, managing teams, managing uh, especially sales teams is kind of a science. If you know how to do it, uh, you can implement it fairly quickly. A hundred percent. I think that sales leadership is part science, part arts, but when it comes to sales management, um, I mean, I can, I think we can fairly say it's a, it's a lot of science in the first place. Yeah, true, true. And, and that's the difference again, between a leader and manager. Um, I do believe that, um, you, you're kind of born as a leader or a coach. Um, really? and, and uh, that, that's who you are because yeah, that's who you are because it's leading and mentoring and coaching teams is about, has a lot to do with your personality. Managing teams is, as we said, is a science. You can really define what needs to be done to manage the team, yeah, to do the mm -hmm. managerial aspect of your job. But then being a leader, um, there's a big difference between the successful and the less successful leaders, and it has all to do with their personality. So that's a bit more um, uh, who you are than, than the managerial aspect of it. Mm -hmm. So that's great because we said in the beginning that there's many people that want to be the leader. And they probably want to be the leader because they have it in their personality to be the leader and they forgot the managerial aspect, but that should not be a burden. They, they can learn it because it's, as we said, it's a science. It's not something that you got in you as uh, uh, in, exactly. your, in your personality. I a hundred percent agree with that. All right. Well, Edwin, I feel we could talk uh, uh, hours on that topic, on that subject. And especially uh, I'm mm -hmm. sure you have actually much more uh, interesting anecdotes uh, coming from your experience. Maybe that's going to be for next time. Um, but let me first thank you for your time, for uh, the great stories you've shared, the explanations. Um, if people want to find out more about Edwin, about you, where would you like to, to send them to? Yeah, they can uh, they can go to my LinkedIn profile. Uh, uh, I think all my con contact deals, uh, details are in there. My email, everything is there, so uh, they can contact me the best day, best way they like. Uh, but it's my my telephone, my email, or whatever. Uh, all right. So for the it's audience, all on my it's LinkedIn profile. Edwin van Waas. Um, Edwin, I have one last question yeah, for you. A question I ask all my guests, and it goes as follow. So if Edwin would be a brand. What would it stand for? Um, that's a very good one. Uh, I think I'm, I'm probably going to repeat what I've been saying uh, all, all the way. Um, a person that treats others with respect and is eager um, to help people to grow and become better and knows and understands that he needs to learn himself also. So uh, that's kind of, uh, so mm. humble and respectful. I think that is, uh, that's what I want to be. I'm probably not always and respectful. I'm probably not always like that, but, uh, I, but I hope most of the times I'm like that. Yeah, but I definitely love it. The humble but respectful challenger, Edwin Van Waas. All right. Well, thank you so much, Edwin, thank you for, for having you on the show. I remember that. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Wishing you You're all the welcome. best, man. Very welcome. That's it. 
We have once again reached the end of an episode. I just really appreciate you all spending the time. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Until next week with a fresh new episode.